Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Cyrus, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic to have you along. Uh, what is uh, the middle of January? Uh, we've just gotten through a Christmas with a huge new uh, COVID excitement and uh, some interesting how sure you started. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Um, like most people, I've taken some time just to relax, decompress uh, over the Christmas time. I was very fortunate this year to spend um, New Year's Eve on Sydney Harbour with some friends and always loved that spectacular environment of the um, the harbour environment and the, the fireworks. And um, just more recently, actually, with the team, we've had a great start to 2022 with our annual team planning event. Uh, we called it Summit in the Sun and it was held up in, uh, in Manly in Queensland. Okay. And how many days did that go for? So we spent two days and it was the, the typical mix of, you know, some work product as well as um, a range of activities to get to know each other. Actually, we, we had a couple of great ones. One was an afternoon of team drumming out in a park down near the beach. And um, the other one was taking half a day out on the, uh, on Morton Bay, you know, just to relax, um, have a chat, go for a swim and those kinds of things. But you'd be interested in this. I think one of the things that we did differently with this team planning one is very different to say many organizations who define their agenda and then use that time to tell the team where they're going. We took a very open and collaborative approach to designing the future for 2022. Mm-hmm. We called the summit, uh, design your ideal cat feather. And the idea was that we invited everybody to come to the, uh, the sessions to spend some time expressing what's really important to them, where they'd like to see themselves going and how they could use cat feather as a platform. If you mm-hmm. I understand from a, a founder and a managing partner's point of view, um, that has some elements of sort of risk because you're not quite sure where it's going to go. But the, uh, the team that we have with us are a really great mix of talented and deeply experienced people. So we were quite okay for them to just come and tell us what they wanted to do. And so using that sort of input over the last couple of days at that summit, um, we've defined a really interesting path moving forward. And we're right now in the process of unpacking the detail of that and getting into some of the action planning so that we can make these things come true. So Cyrus, tell us about Capfeather. Obviously it's a business that you founded with Robert Jew, who I've known a dear to my heart for many, many years. So, so well, tell us about Capfeather and how you operate and the team and the clients that you serve, et cetera. So Richard, um, Robert and I have been working together for nearly 10 years um, in the customer strategy and the customer experience innovation space. And uh, one of the things that we noticed over time was that despite a lot of focus and effort in the customer experience space, particularly not a lot of clients had managed to demonstrate real value coming out of their CX work. And primarily because it was often oriented around incremental improvement or uh, most typically there was a lot of work done around what you should do, but there was very little work done around how to execute it effectively and quickly. Now at the same time, Robert and I in the back parts of 2018 and 2019 wrote a book called Lean CX. And we took a different approach to thinking about customer experience innovation, if you will, and using lean methods and a range of behavioral psychology techniques and frameworks to figure out how to get value out of CX much more quickly. So the concept of lean CX uh, is one that we've used to build a practice around. And so in um, late 2019, early 2020, 
we decided to stand up camp there. But as you know, early 2020 was the uh, start of the pandemic and it was possibly the hardest time ever to, um, to start a firm. But apart from the first few months being rather challenging, I was really heartened to find that we had some early traction with um, clients, both old and new, and we're able to build out an emerging practice. Now, the thing that we specialize in is, is, is two areas of revenue growth. We call it the cap for the growth model. And it's essentially looking at either the things that you currently do as an organization and helping grow BAU, if you will. And the other one is finding what we call an adjacent market position or a substantial new and sustainable revenue stream. So all of the, the techniques, um, the, the methods, the frameworks, et cetera, that we bring to the bear have got this very sharp focus on how do we create real revenue value. So there are a range of consulting firms, for example, who can promise better profitability, but typically they're focused at reducing cost. So they normally come in and do a smash and grab on the cost side of things. Um, that's all good. What we're focused on is helping organizations really build new revenue or better revenue streams. And in the, um, in the better revenue streams, it, it's a range of, let's call them classic marketing and customer strategy things like better acquisition approaches, better engagement and retention approaches, building stronger value through a better, much more aligned customer experience delivery capability, if you will, what we might call a branded customer experience. And on the adjacent market position, the idea is to find a new market territory or a new product and service innovation territory that's close enough for the business to credibly leverage into without too much risk, but does afford them an entirely new pie that they haven't addressed before. Mm -hmm. And give us some examples of the type of clients that you work with. So there's, I'll give you two examples. Uh, one of them, I, I can name it, the other one I won't, but I'll tell you about the second. So uh, one of them is an organization called Fiber King. Now Fiber King is a multi-generational Australian manufacturer and they do a range of different things. But one of the things that they do is end of line packaging systems. So if you imagine Carlton and United Breweries, for example, they've got a range of bottles coming off the production line. At some point in time, you have to put six dummies together to form a six pin, mm -hmm. those together to form a slab. You put four of those together, you've got a case. So these guys build the kind of automated machinery that does that end of line packaging. Now you can imagine that um, at a point in time, there's only so many of these large packaging systems that you can sell to, um, you know, a Carlton and United Brews or Asahi Brews, that sort of company. And what we helped the, the team do is figure out that one of the big changes over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, and you know this really well, in the beer category, for example, has been the advent of craft brewing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of differences between craft brewers and Carlton and United Brews, for example, is one key, uh, key similarity. They both need to take product from the end of the production system, package it up so it can go to point of sale. It just turns out that the craft brewing companies, the little small ones, small garages and small sheds and things, just need to do it much more slowly with a much smaller footprint and at a much lower cost. So by taking their original product and understanding the emergent market that it presented itself and then adapting both the product and the service package around it, they've created what they call the little packer or an adjacent market position. So that's one example of, of how we work with an organization. In another category, um, really interesting space actually in, in early childhood care. Um, in early child care, one of the things that defines their revenue stream is essentially the number of um, childcare centres that they've got, the number of seats in that, multiplied by essentially the government mandated fees and levies. Yeah? yeah. And what they also realised was that it was a natural end life to their engagement or relationship with 
um, their parents about was, you know, once the kids popped off to primary school, they no longer had a relationship. So the real question was, how does an organization like that um, deepen its value in a service offering and extend its life cycle? So we deployed a range of really interesting sort of explorative techniques and innovation approaches to come up with uh, a very, very substantial adjacent market position for that organization, you know, north of the, the multi-hundred million dollar um, phase. So if you compare those two examples, one of them's around sort of product service innovation in a, an existing kind of market. The other one was around um, market and service innovation for an organization that was looking to expand out of its traditional boundaries. Okay, great, fantastic examples. And uh, looking at your website, I see that you've got a team that is quite geographically dispersed, people all over the place. So uh, how big is the team? Yeah, so um, the, the team is located in three Australian cities today, so uh, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. And uh, we've also got a couple of team members, one in um, Oxford, UK, and another gentleman in, in the US. When we, when Robert and I founded Cap Feather, we had an ambition to be um, kind of, let's call it small global to start with, uh, for a couple of really good reasons. One is that we, we believe that by having offices in different parts of the world, we'll be able to accelerate our impact. And one of the things we're really focused on is sort of positive impact from a, um, a, a business outcome point of view. And the second one is, and I'll be really transparent with you, we love international projects. I, I remember a few years back, one of the most interesting projects Robert and I were involved with was a, a pharmaceutical project up in South Korea. And uh, the, the task at hand was really hard. We had to try and help the pharmaceutical organization really deeply understand the, the patient experience for people dealing with mental health, so schizophrenia specifically, and uh, multiple myeloma, so a form of, um, form of cancer. Now, you can imagine that ordinarily that's a challenging project, but then if you do it in another country like South Korea with different language sets, different cultural styles, attributes, et cetera, it was just really challenging. But at the same time, immensely rewarding and immensely interesting. So, um, and, and that's on the back of, you know, having worked internationally for quite a number of years before doing consulting. So we, we've got a really uh, strong interest in doing international projects just because they're fun and, and engaging and interesting and challenging. Excellent. Well, let's come back to Cap Feather a little later in the conversation. I'm always interested to uh, sort of step back in time and understand your background. So uh, whereabouts, as far as were you born, you know, mum and dad, brothers and sisters, and then let's have a sort of a quick traipse through your career background. <laughs> so um, I grew up in a smallish um, country city at the time, about 15,000 people called Terrell, country Victoria. Uh, and uh, then later I moved to Melbourne shortly before at a very early age, young, young adult age, heading overseas. So I broke the normal model of going from high school to university, Richard, and instead uh, took the opportunity to work for a year in Australia, um, weirdly doing construction. Like I was, I was literally a labourer on a concrete project. <laughs> I saw that on your LinkedIn profile. And I, I can tell you, look, there were many moments that were just, you know, sort of glorious and, and totally memorable. Uh, I did work out though, that I didn't want to be a construction worker for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then had the opportunity to move to Hong Kong. And, uh, after that spent about oh, in total, nearly three years in both Hong Kong and Japan. Uh, I loved that time. And it, and it was one of those, you can imagine being from a small country you know, town in Victoria to suddenly being in a place like Hong Kong. Mm. Yeah in Japan, a total reframing of the way that you look at the world occurs, at least it did for me. Were either, either of your parents business people? No, dad was, um, 
dad was a steel fabricator. Right. Ended up running a, um, a, a really good um, steel fabrication operation down there. And mum was a nurse. In fact, one of the strange things about my, my family is we seem to be um, inundated with nurses of all different types. Her right. mum particularly was a, um, a matron, so she delivered, uh, you know, babies for decades. Right. Good for that. That's what my mum did too. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So I, I suppose with that background, and particularly um, being thrust into, you know, the thriving metropolis, uh, uh, you know, she would have been a huge culture shock. It, it really was, um, but I loved it. I, I, I thrived on it. There was a, you know, there's an emotional dimension to it. There's an intellectual dimension to it. Uh, just meeting, seeing, and working with people from so many different parts of the world was a complete eye-opener, and I, I really loved it. But after um, after that three-year stint, there was a time when I was nearly 22 that I realized that perhaps I needed a, a formal education. So I decided to come back to Australia and... Um, Undertook. I, I landed at the Trobe University first, starting a double degree there, there in economics and Japanese. And after about a year, transferred to Swinburne University, too. Mm-hmm. and uh, really loved that time actually. And I, I think, I think in hindsight, the intuitive decision not to go to university when I finished high school was the right one, because when I came back, uh, having had that world experience, I was completely focused and prepared to absorb everything I could in the in the university landscape. Mm-hmm. And then uh, where to from there? I see you've worked in telecommunications and then uh, in the banking sector and so on. So it took us through a bit of that journey. Yeah. So I did start out for about a year with a small Australian technology company, um, working in you know, conferencing sales of all things. Um, if you think about what video conferencing has become today, it was a far cry from that back in the, uh, the early 90s. Um, I was then fortunate enough to, uh, to land a product management job at Ericsson. Ericsson Mobile, and that was just when mobile phones as a sort of, you know, consumer device were exploding. This is about 1997. And uh, it was a fantastic journey. Ericsson was a great company to work with, really supportive, a range of different growth opportunities, great people. Uh, you know, it was a really, really good time. And probably the thing, you know, when, when executives look back at their career, Richard, there are typically two or three turning points of sliding door moments. Mine occurred when um, when the, the managing director of the mobile phone business was taken over to the UK to run the global satellite business for Ericsson. And um, I'd been working as a product manager on that particular area, and he invited me to go and join him. So I was very fortunate to to take a sort of four-year role over in the UK with Ericsson. Mm-hmm. And it was just fascinating. You know, again, it was one of those life experiences where you, you go to another country, even if it was England, it was very, very different. Um, you know, getting involved in the deep engineering, the product life cycle of uh, an emergent tech like satellite telephony, only to realize about a year and a half yet that the market was just completely destroyed by the advent of, you know, GSM, uh, sort of global standard technologies. Mm-hmm. The underlying business case had almost been eliminated for, um, for roaming satellite phones. But that was a fascinating time. And I guess I did well there because I was then invited to be part of the, the sort of global team that stood up Sony Ericsson Mobile Communications. And in terms of my corporate career, this would have to be one of the highlights. I was working with the president of uh, the newly established Sony Ericsson Mobile Communications and his team on trying to figure out how do we create the nexus between uh, mobile phones, content, particularly the Sony Group content, and then this emergent idea that people would be consuming news media content and those sort of things on their phones. Mm. Back in the day, you know, we we were pretty sort of... um, pretty radical. We formed some of the early 
um, new ventures around what they call then compartmentalized games or downloads. So you'd have a part of a product like a game or something like that in the phone, and that would be used at point of sale to create differentiation and, and interest. And then we created the backend mechanism for people to be able to then download subsequent games. So it was a really interesting sort of explorative time. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember the kind of games I was playing my phone by Nokia back then. It Snake and, you know, the, the, the gaming technology wasn't quite as exciting as it is now. No, since I know, right. But <laughs> you think about, so Snake, we all love Snake, you know, doodling around on that. But um, at the time, uh, Sony Origin came out with the, the world's first color screen. And right. on the back of that, we innovated around a thing called um, Tony Hawk. So Tony Hawk was a, a skateboarder. Mm. Yeah, Tony skateboarder, right. Yeah. And we licensed up with him and, and basically had a game built with another party. And part of that game was embedded in, so you could play a few levels, and then you could buy more of the levels. And that was one of the very early market innovations oh, yeah. of being able to pay for additional gaming content on a mobile phone. Okay, okay. Well, uh, yeah, I'd, uh, because even 2001, 2003, I don't even, was PlayStation a thing there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. PlayStation was totally a thing then. Right. Yeah. Okay, sure. And so then what brought you back to Australia? Um, so inevitably, it was kind of family and the home connection. So... Mm. 2004, um, we came back to Australia and landed in Sydney. And um, I was very fortunate then to uh, pick up a role with Telstra because Telstra at the time were going through that um, that rapid change around higher speed networks. What do we do in terms of content value added services over the top of the normal telephony messaging stuff? And um, I was working with them on um, the, the 3GSM launch, um, iMode, which was a, a kind of a Japanese you know solution and box type approach. And uh, had a really good time for a couple of years working with the teams there to define and then bring these particular initiatives to, to market. And it was probably sometime in, in 2006 um, when I had that real change towards being in the customer experience space. And I re- remember it really clearly. Sol Trujillo was running Telstra at the time and um, he was really driving the executive hard around this idea of customer focus or market-based management was the, the term they used for customer focus. And uh, Holly Kramer, who was uh, my boss at the time, came to me and said, uh, we need a response to this thing around customer experience and you're it. <laughs> you know, at the time, I kind of said, hang on, what does that mean? <laughs> and, and we weren't really sure what it was going to mean. Um, but Holly said, look, I'd really like you to do it. And I said, okay, let's do it. It's a, it's a great opportunity. So we stood up a, a new team and a new capability within Telstra and started to try to figure out not only what should CX mean in the context of a, an operator like Telstra, um, but how to build up an internal capability and work with all of the, the teams, the functions and the divisions to make some progress around that. So that, that was a fascinating time. And that took me through to about um, 2010. We had a, a range of really cool projects uh, that I worked on at that time. And then I decided it was change uh, required for me because frankly, I was nearly 40. And I was facing that decision of being either a telco guy for the rest of my life or having a broader palette. So um, I was very fortunate to have an opportunity over at ANZ working in that space as head of the um, head of digital customer experience. And then after a couple of years in that space, which was somewhat challenging just to the internal um, technology capabilities, um, I actually had an equity uh, partner opportunity in a um, customer experience strategy consulting firm. So that's what I was doing for about eight years after the banking thing. So I made that move from client side to consulting side. Worked with um, a range of really great clients over that period of time. But again, had that um, that real awareness that despite the 
the, the volume of activity in the CX um, customer strategy space, there was often not a huge amount to be shown for it. Because mm-hmm. of either the, the, the lack of focus on an explicit measurable outcome or the lack of execution support. So, you know, quite often consulting firms provide the PowerPoint deck and then it's left up to the, the internal teams who are already typically at capacity to be able to execute. And quite often that's where things fall down. Mm-hmm. Sorry, um, before we sort of move too heavily into cap for that, hmm. I, I note again from your LinkedIn profile that during that period, you also was not executive director for a number of boards. And, um, and so was that a case of you were wanting to build out a portfolio career or they were just fun and interesting things that came along the way? That's a great question. So, um, I hadn't approached that from a, um, a, a portfolio point of view. It's actually fun and interesting is probably the right thing. So I've realized, you know, over the years as I sort of try to reflect on, on who I am is that a part of me has actually a, a high, um, risk tolerance and I'm very entrepreneurial and I'm very interested in novelty. Mm-hmm. And you combine those three things, startup landscape is the perfect place to be. Uh, but at the same time, I really enjoy operating in uh, larger teams and larger organizations. And I've loved the the independence, if you will, and also the impact that you can drive through consulting. So I haven't landed in one of those spaces um, solely. I've been doing a mix of the things, Richard. So the um, the NED, was, uh, one of them was to give back. It was with um, uh, Lady Gallery or Gallery Victoria. So I spent six years on their board. And uh, that was really fascinating. I learned a lot about the early childhood education and care space, but also a lot about how to, how to guide, steer and work with an executive team to take an organization, which was fundamentally, um, you know, a small one to start thinking about how do they create leverage of purpose. It was a fascinating time. Um, and also a couple of technology companies, one of them was uh, operating in the aged care space and their, uh, their technology was really targeted at understanding behavioral changes over time in elderly citizens, and then working out how to intervene to enhance their well-being. Mm-hmm. That one was ended up being called Billy Care. Um, and uh, the other one is a small Adelaide technology company called ArriveBuy. And ArriveBuy has got a really great platform, like massively scalable um, platform based around um, delivery optimization, notification and route. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So quite a mix, right? Yeah, and, but... Uh... In some instances, uh, an equity play opportunity for you as well. hundred percent. Yep. Yep. I, I do believe in this idea that, um, if you're going to be involved in something, then having your own skin in the game is a, is a really powerful signal, both of the commitment, the intent, mm. but also it's motivated to make things happen. Mm. Yeah. I'd look, uh, we could have an entirely new podcast about that, about the varying opinions about whether non-executive directors should be truly independent or whether they should have skin in the game is to definitely, uh, Two schools of thought in that regard. Okay, so Cap Feathers, so uh, you and Rob put your heads together, uh, started your business, as you say, just prior to COVID. I actually started my business on the 1st of February 2009, right at the sort of, you know, the heat of the GFCs. <laughs> I can, uh, I feel your pain. So, uh, and, uh, and so tell us, you know, as you say, it's been a couple of years. Mm. What have been some of the, you know, key milestones during that period? So when we set up CatVetter, we had um, some very specific objectives. One was to create a, a, a palette or a portfolio, if you will, of unique IP. 
So things that we could credibly do with organizations to help them create value. And one of those was translating the concepts and the principles around the Lean CX book that I've mentioned to you, mm-hmm. to essentially a work product that we can apply to specific problems. So we, we've done very well in that regard. Uh, we've got a great portfolio of things that we can do, both in this idea of an adjacent market position, but also helping fine tune an organization's current or BAU program, if you will. Um, we've gathered a really great and interesting and almost eclectic group of individuals around the table. So you were looking at our website. Um, we have some deeply experienced people from different parts of the world with really varied backgrounds and capabilities. But the single sort of unifying thing, I think, is that they all want to make a difference in a positive way, um, given that they've already had a good 20 years or so of their normal sort of work careers. Mm-hmm. And it does, it seems to give, it seems to give the team a bit of a nuance, Richard, in terms of how they think about opportunities and how they'd like to approach them. Um, the other thing we've done is we've, we've done some really great project work with a range of clients that I, I can't tell you about, of course, but those clients have varied across the early child and education care space through to retail, government, aged care, banking and finance. It's, it's just a fascinating sort of an eclectic mix, if you will, of different retail clients. And what it tells me is that it's, um, there is definitely a market need out there for an organization to work closely and sort of almost intimately in some respects with, with a client to help them understand where their opportunities lie to truly grow the old system growth, their top line revenue. And um, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you brought the team together for this sort of vision planning, uh, what the, would they like to capture the uh, environment and culture and so on to stand for them and also for your clients into the future. So if you were to project out for say the next five years, where do you see the business going to over that period? So um, that is a very good question. I'll come back to this, this idea of somebody in the sun, and I've already described to you how we invited our team to be involved in the input. So we're, the, the theme, the overarching theme was evolution. Mm-hmm. We've set some very specific sort of ideas. So Robin and myself, which, with regards to where we'd like to go, and the team is now working with us to build out some new ones, which is kind of cool. Coming back to your question, if we continue to evolve in the way that, that I'd like to see. So we will be a... Um, I think a large, small firm, just teetering on the edges of medium-sized firm, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. uh, from a, a numbers point of view, and that obviously has implications around both revenue and people, that we've made some really great impact across a range of clients that they are proud to talk about and we're proud to reference. That'll be really important for us. Mm-hmm. Um, that we've managed to, to nurture and grow our two offshore presences and add another couple. So I've been thinking about Singapore quite a lot. Um, it, it's just been difficult during the pandemic, as you can imagine, to, to really put time and, uh, and effort uh, around that. But I, I do like Singapore as a, a place to be in a way of operating. And um, I think the other thing is that we'll have a, we'll be known for being a practice that can not only create really good opportunities for organizations, but has been able to help them carry that through in terms of execution. And so this idea of having a, a competent and credible change management, if you will, um, capability alongside the the strategy consulting one, and one that works to effectively help the internal culture shift is a really important thing for us. Okay. Now, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are either CEOs or aspiring CEOs or business owners. And so assuming that, you know, the, um, they're listening to what you have to say and they're thinking, oh, I'd I wonder, you know, what Cap Feather could do to assist my business. 
what are some of the questions um, that you would ask to explore that? Uh, I noticed from your, you know, your website, you say, look, we only want to work with companies that are committed to change or words to that effect. So, um, yeah, what are some of the, the things that you would do to explore whether you could add value? So, so underlying your question, there's a really interesting inverse question to that. And that is basically, when would you walk away from something? Right. Um, and you know, Robin and I talked about this a lot, that, um, when you are in a conversation with the CEO or an executive team, it, it can become apparent that, um, even though they're interested in a particular piece of work, it may not be truly value yielding for the organization. Right. That just happens sometimes, right? And consultants do see this quite a lot. So we would, we would prefer to be really candid and honest with the client and to say, look, we don't believe that that's going to achieve the kind of impact that you're looking for, even if that risks not getting a project at that time. Now that's quite different from the behavior I've seen from many consulting firms over the year. and, and years. And just remember, I mean, I used to work in a different one, but also I used to buy consulting services. So when I was back at corporate side and I certainly bought many consulting services and at the time this kind of behavior around, oh, you've got something we can help you with. Yes, let's do it. Right. We'll get on. <laughs> um, so there are, there are times that we'd walk away from things. Um, now in terms of what's likely to be a successful project. So I think it goes like this. One is that the, the CEO, if not, you know, the CXO is very clear on what they're trying to achieve in terms of the growth ambitions that they have. And they're typically above system growth type things. The second one is that, um, they're prepared to invest time, effort, and their team, if you will, their team's resources for a period of time to at least explore where this could go. And then with the, the, the next step already planned in, which is around execution. So this is just critically important. So, you know, come up with potentially an adjacent market position or a new idea for, for revenue. We explore that in great detail using a range of great method. And then once we've sort of come to the point where we agree that there's a market opportunity and everybody's happy, a really strong signal for us, um, Richard, is that the executive says, yes, so let's go for it from an implementation point of view. Yeah. Okay. And so what are the typically, uh, at these CEOs generally coming to you because, you know, they've got a burning platform, they're in pain and they need a solution or would there be also a mix of companies who say, look, Business is great. We're doing really well, but we want to take it to the next level. Yeah, so it's it's a mixture of both. Um, probably more of the former than the latter. Uh-huh. For a really simple reason, you know, if a business is doing great already, then it's a really it's a smart question for the organisation to ask itself: Do we really need external help to do something else? They may have already got their, if you will, their strategic flywheel and their engine humming really well, and they're they're doing okay. Um, it depends on how they read, I think, the environment, the water, the wider environment with regards to either you know, regulatory change, uh, technology change, or, or behavioral change across the base to whether they intuit something large is about to occur. And you can imagine there was a lot of that going on during the um, pandemic. So there were very substantial changes in, in sort of consumer or client behavior, um, combined with at the time, you know, Royal Commission's rolling through with back end financial one and then the aged care one. So there's been a, a heck of a lot of change. But um, typically the, the orgs that we work with, um, are looking to, they're looking to fix the problem around revenue growth. They otherwise can't fix internally is why would they try to seek external help? Right. <laughs> and, and typically it's either because they don't have the capacity plus they don't have the understanding about how to apply 
behavioral psychology to customer strategy in a way that gives them cut through. So one of the things that we talk about quite a lot in, in our Lean CX approach is this idea of cut through. And it just simply means being able to do something at the right time via the right channel of the right value to you as a customer, for example, that cuts through all of the other clatter and can then get you to buy, engage, or, or do something else with us. What would be a tangible example of, I mean, you've spoken uh, about your, your two prior um, examples of clients, but this idea of cutting through, I, you know, if I, a lot of um, industries becoming very homogenized. If we look at my industry, for example, you know, recruitment is recruitment largely. And it, uh, it is very difficult to get cut through, particularly when you've got, you know, uh, organizations being absolutely pummeled by recruitment consultants wanting their business, as I'm sure they're being pummeled by customer experience consultants and management consultants and strategy consultants and so on. So, you know, what are some tangible things that organizations can think about in order to create that cut through? So I'll give you one example of, of another organization that we worked with. Um, their challenge was they had a range of um, stores on the high street, so, you know, the, the normal sort of retail rows, and they were trying to get more foot traffic to come in. Now, they were dealing essentially with skin cancer checks. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the innovation that we applied was one based on a really deep understanding of what's driving and motivating behavior of the potential customers as they walk past. And it turns out, unsurprisingly maybe, is that there's a group of people who just don't care about skin damage. There's a group of people who care about skin damage enough to want to investigate it. And there's a group of people who care most about what they look like, right? Now, of course, there are some intersects with those. But what was really interesting was the ability to tap into this, uh, let's call it the, the, the fade or the vanity aspect of the people who love to look good and then bring that back to enticing them to think about some damage. And the way that we did that was really straightforward. We did a range of um, sort of research and analysis to it to get to that conclusion. So then we trialed um, a really simple system, which wasn't overly expensive, but gave people the ability as they walked past to see what their face looked like in a UV contrast um, lens, right? Okay. You've ever seen it? Once you actually apply that light to your face, instead of looking like you do now, any and all sun damage that you've got is glaringly obvious. Right. Right. And the moment that they saw that, they went, oh, wow, look at that. There's something going on. And it, it, it encouraged them to come in and book an appointment. And that drove a very substantial uptake in footfall into those, um, into those stores and revenue from the bookings and ultimately the treatments. So the idea there is that in, in that case, we apply, applied behavioral psychology, being research needs and analysis to deeply understand what's driving a particular customer segment mm -hmm. and then innovated an engagement mechanism, if you will, to, to bring them in and sort of create cut through, as you said, where they're in this busy, crowded environment. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, more broadly then for, for clients, you asked the question, how, how can organizations start to think about ways to get cut through? One of the things that we find is, is particularly effective is a resegmentation of their base. Now, if you, we, we do a load of work with different organizations. So one of the things we find is quite commonly um, segmentation is done at a base level, which is what you might call demographic. So, you know, it might be how much you spend, um, it might be, you know, where you live, age cohorts and those kinds of things. The next level up from that is then, um, sort of behavioral segmentation. So we can understand how people are behaving and we can adapt our service offer and engagement to that. 
Now, but you get real cut through when you do psychographic segmentation. Mm. And really simply what that means for the people listening to this podcast is that let's say that you and I are roughly the same on paper. We might be a similar age. Um, you know, we both look like you know, each other in many, many different aspects. But the way that we think about things, our attitudinal approach to life may be substantially different. And when you understand how somebody thinks and their attitudes around certain things, you can really start to then craft a customer value proposition and the way that you deliver or engage that CVP in ways that are more likely to get cut through for that individual. And, and this is bespoke research that you guys are doing with each engagement, or are you drawing on, uh, you know, uh, information that's been collated through social media and things like that? Yeah. So we, we use um, bespoke research every time. So we use what we call a mixed method approach to research. Typically what that means is that we combine three kinds of research approaches. One is um, deep qualitative um, interviewing. So in technical terms, it's called contextual inquiry. But typically what you're trying to do is sit down with somebody and understand in detail what's happening with their life with regards to a particular prompt question or opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, we also then do, as you can imagine, uh, large scale sampling. So typical quant survey to measure some of the signals that we're getting. And we also apply a really interesting range of social sentiment um, analysis techniques to build up a profile as to what people are talking about in the social universe across a range of different platforms, because that helps us also understand what's front of mind from a trend and conversation point of view. Now, when you mix those three things together, you start to understand again, what's sort of driving and motivating behavior. You can understand what's on trend and on topic, and you can measure essentially the relative vector of those. So how strong are the signals and what direction and what magnitude. And that allows you therefore understand not only what's important, but what's meaningful in terms of things an organization can do or, you know, can engage with. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds uh, very complicated, but uh, I'm sure that uh, you guys uh, with the expertise you have uh, make uh, good common sense of it all. I've known Robert, uh, or as I call him, Rob, he liked to be, I'm Dr. Robert Jew. Uh, I've known Rob uh, since I was a MBA student at QUT. He was my favorite lecturer because uh, he gave me sevens in all of the subjects that I did with <laughs> Well, you know, for, for, the, for the folks listening to this, I, I don't want them to think we're just a research um, agency. I think that's a really important point, right, is that um, to, to create, to define and create effective customer market strategy, it really is deeply important to understand the customer base. Mm. But then it's really important to figure out what you're going to do in response to that understanding. Mm -hmm. The other things that we do with, with client trend is basically figure out what is the appropriate customer value proposition in response to what we found out from an insight perspective. And then really importantly, how do we size that in terms of the opportunity so that the organization can figure out how much they need to invest, do the work, we do the work to understand um, the risk profile of that particular investment. So how do we minimize or mitigate risks? And then how do we deploy that across their current channel mix or build new channels to market? Mm -hmm. So we know a range of the sort of strategy development execution work as well. Yeah. And I think from my conversations with, uh, uh, Rob in the past, as you said earlier, you know, it's the implementation when you've got an existing team that are already at capacity mm. and, uh, you mentioned the packaging company and I know that, you know, you've got an ongoing engagement with that to mm -hmm. essentially really support the activity and you know, management of the sales function. And, uh, it's obviously generating, um, superb results for that business and for your other clients. So look, uh, uh, Cyrus, I know that you're a very busy man before we 
wrap this up. Is there anything in relation to Capfield that I haven't asked you or any you know, final things you'd like to say about that? So that last point that you made uh, is a really good one around this idea of sales management and optimization. It's a really interesting edge that we have at Capfitter. So many orgs are, frankly, you know, already pretty good at what they do. Uh, they've got a, a good product market fit. They've got a credible sales and service delivery capability. Their experience is good. Quite often one of the challenges they have is how do we scale our acquisition or our funnel activities, if you will, and close on them effectively. So um, you're totally right. We have been doing a lot of work around the idea of sales optimization. Mm-hmm. And that is, again, it's, it's using a range of, let's call them sales management techniques around planning, client understanding, those sort of things, but mixing and matching those together with behavioral psychology so that the sales teams are more effective at what they do. Now, interestingly, if you think about this idea of increasing top-line revenue, making the, the current or existing BD capability much more effective is a phenomenally um, strong way of building top-line revenue fast because they already know what they're doing. You've got a credible product or service and the rest of your machine is fine. So if you can expand this, essentially the, um, the number of opportunities coming through and successfully close on those through the kinds of processes and the techniques that we use, then you'll build it, you know, revenue pretty quickly. And that's one thing that's a growing part of our business. And obviously it's something that uh, you're very passionate about and find fun to do as well. Yeah, completely right. It's really interesting. It's, um, it's one of those things where you bring together the idea of strategy, human performance, and behavioral psychology in a way that just has great results for the, for the client. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, Cyrus, um, uh, before we wrap it up, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself. You know, what are the little things you like to do uh, when you're not working to keep the petrol tank full? I know that you're a, you're a keen sailor. I am. So we've got, well, I love water sports. So, you know, I was formerly a professional uh, scuba diver in my very early years. That was great. Why did I change? You've got to ask that question. Um, yeah, so I love scuba diving, uh, windsurfing, and just generally being in the water. But sailing is, is definitely my passion. I learned a, a 50-foot um, boat that we race competitively, both down here at, uh, around the harbour, but I do quite a bit of ocean racing as well. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I find about ocean racing is that it's an activity that certainly requires focus, but it requires enormous teamwork. And, uh, you know, it has a fairly high risk element to it at different times. But it's one of those things that has just immense reward uh, at the end of the day. You know, you know that once you've planned the race, you've executed the race, and you've, you've crossed the line having a, a cold drink, that you've pulled off something quite remarkable. So you asked about five-year timeframes. I can tell you about five-year timeframe for the, the second one. Right. Look, the boat, yeah, I've got the boat listed down for the 2025 Melbourne to Osaka race. Which is the longest two-handed race in the world for, for sailing. What does two-handed mean? Only two crew? Yeah, exactly right. Just two of you on board for probably four to five weeks. Wow. Yeah. And, and getting between Melbourne and, and Osaka is, um, is like a full mixed bag of sailing conditions from best straight through to, you know, sailing up the, the East Coast through to the doldrums and, you know, potential cyclonic winds up in, in Asia. Well, that sounds uh, like an exciting challenge to look forward to. Be fantastic. So thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, I'm thinking uh, that uh, I do um, uh, webinars for our clients where we bring on interesting business leaders to talk about uh, ways that CEOs and managing directors can enhance their business. I think you'd be a wonderful guest for one of those. Uh, so we have to talk about that. Uh, but in the meantime, thanks very much and have a great afternoon. All right, Richard. Thanks. Take care. Okay. 
Thank you for listening to the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. We frequently feature guests from organisations we are currently recruiting to build the company brand as an attraction strategy for candidates. If you would like to promote your organisation's brand as an employer of choice, please contact Richard directly on 0403 588 517 or via email richardt at arateexecutive.com.au. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.